1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 9. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give you letters of introduction to the men you approve, and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Lord, would you speak to us your word of life? Life eternal, the word of life that sustains us in our daily living. May your word come to us with grace. May your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. May we recognise what is for us and what is for others. Build us up in our faith and deepen our commitment to love and serve you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Who'd have thought it? The economy in the doldrums, threats of a triple-dip recession, incomes falling, cuts all over the place, prices rising like you've not seen for 30 years. Comic Relief should break all records by raising £75 million for charity. You wouldn't have expected it, really. Bucks the trend, which has seen a reduction steadily over the past three years in levels of charitable giving. Every charity seems to be finding its giving eroded and some are having to close down. Though last year, apparently, a staggering £9.3 billion was given to charity in the UK. Clearly there's still a lot of generosity around. I have to say, and, and thumbs up to you all, it is predominantly retired people who are the most generous giving over twice as much as those aged under 30. Sorry about that. That may reflect the way in which these days some retired people are actually a bit more financially secure, perhaps. haven't got quite so far to plan ahead as the younger generation. We've got decades to cope with these straightened times. It's even the case that those aged over 65 said that they intended to give more to charity this year. Uh, whereas younger people are cutting back. But it has been a trend, I've got to say, that older people do tend to be more generous. And although younger people may give more financially, often they are giving a smaller proportion of their income than older people do. Um, Older people, maybe they've uh, learned to be a bit looser with their money over the years, but older people do tend to be more generous in giving than younger ones. Most people, if they give money away, give it to medical research. But the largest quantity of money is given to religious causes. 17% of charitable giving goes to religious causes, and that is donated by 14% of all givers. 
And it's the only cause where the proportion of the amount given exceeds the proportion of the people giving it. For every other cause, you have a greater proportion of people giving a smaller proportion of the money. But people who give to religious causes give generously and in some cases sacrificially. It's evidence, if you like, that God's people tend to be generous. And I have to say, that is how it should be. We are called to model our attitudes on the grace of Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we might be enriched by his poverty. Of course, it's also true to say that people who give money to churches are usually involved in the churches that they support monetarily. And statistically, people do give more money to projects with which they have a hands-on involvement as volunteers. So that is also a part of it. You're giving to something you are involved in personally in terms of your time and commitments. And that makes a big difference too. As a minister, I have to say that it's a privilege and a joy to be in a church where people do give faithfully and generously. Uh, We're not a church where we're having fundraising events all the time to raise events for this event or that event or that shortfall or covering this, that or the other. Remember once looking at a church where their their, their giving was a fraction of of the budget that they needed to meet and they did it all the time by having sponsored walks and all this kind of other stuff. It just felt that that was a church where they were asking for money all the time. And uh, you have given amazingly generously to the building project without, and I've come in late in the day, but without that sense of being asked for money at every single stage. And I'm aware that we're facing further financial challenges of taking on a second minister, maybe expanding our admin team, and giving a generous donation to the Cambodia Hope organisation. There are financial challenges ahead, but it's a joy to be in a church where people are faithful and generous and model themselves on the grace of Christ. Last lunch at uh, the Auction of Talents, we raised £600 towards Cambodia Hope Organisation, and that was brilliant, and it was good fun as well. Paul says the Lord loves cheerful givers, and I guess that means he loves Brighton Road quite a lot. The, the medieval Jewish philosopher Maimonides outlined eight levels of charitable giving. The lowest level is where donations are given grudgingly. Then you have people who who give less than they should, but they do it cheerfully. Then you have people who give directly to the poor in response to an appeal. Then you have giving directly to the poor without being asked. And so on and so forth with various levels of not knowing what's going on. Until the highest form of charity, which is to help sustain a person before they become impoverished either by offering a substantial gift in a dignified manner, or by extending a suitable loan, or by helping them to find employment or to establish themselves in business so as to make it unnecessary for them to become dependent on others. And it struck me, you know, that that is precisely what the Cambodian Hope Organisation is engaged in doing all the time. The mission that we've agreed to support this year in Cambodia is engaged all the time in precisely that highest level of giving. Because they are engaged in training people in vocational courses, in sewing or motorbike mechanics or welding or computer skills or small-time agricultural projects or livestock farming. 
They give them training in the basic skills. They then give them business training to know how to manage money. They then give them microloans to get them started on the road to financial independence. That is the highest level of giving that there is. And we are supporting them in giving dignity to people, lifting them out of poverty and dependence in a country that's seeking to rebuild itself after the tragedies of 40 years ago. I'm delighted that on top of everything else, we've made a commitment to supporting the Cambodia Hope Organisation. And I'm firmly convinced that as a church, whatever else we do, we need to be generous in supporting overseas organisations like CHO and like the Baptist Missionary Society. However tight things get financially at home, it's right that we continue our commitment to supporting our brothers and sisters abroad. Church's health is measured by the level of giving it gives to overseas causes. And I'm completely convinced of that. There needs to be an international focus in our giving, in our praying, and in our relationships. And I'm delighted that we're able to send Laura back to Haiti and to go with our blessing and our prayers and our support as she works in a volunteer. And again, one of the most inhospitable and poverty-stricken countries of the world, where the need is so great, but good work is being done in the name of Christ. And our model in this respect is the Apostle Paul, who I think, if we can have the map on the screen, please, I think deliberately draws attention to his international network in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 16. We know he wrote this letter to Corinth, which is the, the town on the extreme left there in western Greece. He tells them of his plans to visit them, He wants to spend time with them when he does come. He doesn't want it to be a stopover visit. He doesn't want just to pass through briefly on his way. He spent 18 months there on his first visit. He longs to see them again and, and rebuild his relationships with them. He would like to stay with them for the duration of the winter, if possible. Because traveling in the winter was really difficult. If there was a place he wanted to be, it was in Corinth and spend the months of the winter there because he cared so much about them. He was a man who built personal relationships with the churches that he founded. He was writing the letter from Ephesus, which is the the next one along to the right in western Turkey, as we would know it now. Not an easy place for him to be. He talks elsewhere in this letter of fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. That doesn't actually mean he was necessarily in the arena, because he probably wouldn't survive if he had done. But it does mean he was encountering danger, Fierce opposition, trouble and hostility. In a later letter to Corinth, he would say that he felt pushed far beyond the limits of endurance. He felt he'd felt the sentence of death there. He felt on the edge of despair. Yet despite the opposition, he wasn't going to run away. I want to stay here at least until Pentecost, he says, because a great door for effective work has opened for me here. God was using him. The opportunities for the gospel were too good to miss. He cared about the people he was sharing Christ with. So that was a really tough place to be. Although it would have been far easier just to go away and be safe somewhere else. Some people think he was in prison in Ephesus. The Acts doesn't tell us that. He was committed to the task of sharing Christ with people in that town. On my way to you, he says, in terms of his plans to visit Corinth, he intended to go through Macedonia 
and Macedonia is kind of northern Greece and there's the arrow at the top of the map there. He wanted to go round through Macedonia. Why? We're not quite sure. It may have been because he was worried about churches like Philippi that were receiving opposition and struggling. He wanted to strengthen them and make sure they were okay. It may be also that he wanted to raise money there for his generous gift he was putting together from the churches in Corinth on the left, um, in Macedonia up the top, and in Galatia as well, there in central Turkey. He says, I've written to them as well, and you are to do the same as the Galatian churches are. He was raising a substantial collection of money to send to God's people who were the poor in Jerusalem, which is right down the bottom right-hand corner on the map. And if the church in Corinth deemed it proper, Paul was willing to to go with their delegation to take this gift to Jerusalem itself. And we're talking about a substantial sum of money here, raised by different churches in in Turkey and in Greece. And he says, if if you think it right, I will go and present it to the, the saints in Jerusalem myself. But in his heart, where he really wanted to go was in the opposite direction, further west, to Rome and beyond that to Spain. He was a man who carried the known world in his heart, driven by a passion to share Christ where Christ was not known, and where he had planted churches, a deep-seated commitment to the churches he'd founded there. He was a man who was convinced there should be no barriers to the gospel of Jesus because Christ died for everybody. This collection, this this raising money for the saints in Jerusalem was a a major project on Paul's part. We know that the Christians in Jerusalem had been badly affected by a famine and Paul wanted to support them. But for him, this collection was a tangible demonstration of the unity of the church. Paul had gone up to Jerusalem to the leaders of the church there, and said, you know, I, I, I've been called by Christ to take the gospel outside the Jewish nation. I've been called by Jesus to go to the Gentiles and share the gospel with them and tell them that they can be put right with God just by trusting in Christ. And the leaders in Jerusalem had acknowledged his call. They'd accepted his gospel. They say, go with your blessing. God is sending you to the Gentiles and us to the Jews. There's just one thing we'd like you to do, and that is to continue to remember the poor. Remember the poor in Jerusalem. That was their commission to him as he went out. And he went with that burning in his heart to go to the, to the Gentiles, as he'd been commissioned to do, to share Christ with them. And what he wanted to do was to bring back from the Gentile world to Jerusalem this gift of money to say, look, look what God has done. These gifts of money are tangible evidence of the gospel being established in churches throughout the known world. And these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and as a sign of their commitment to you, I'm bringing you these gifts in their name to alleviate your poverty. For him it was a real sign that this was one church that everybody belonged to. In Romans he says, you know, if if the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual blessings of God's people, Israel, because the gospel came from from God's people, Israel, to them, how right is it that that God's people, Israel, should share in the material blessings that the Gentile churches can bring to them? It was all a part of the international body of Christ working effectively. And that was his vision and his passion. So this was an extremely important project to Paul. And in 1 Corinthians 16 he sets out how he hopes the collection will be taken care of. 
He says, I'm giving you the same instructions as I gave to the churches in Galatia. What are you to do? On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a certain sum of money in your own home and save it up so that when I arrive, it's all ready to be given. We don't have to have a last-minute whip round to get it together, though in fact they did have to have a last-minute whip round because they hadn't been quite as generous and faithful as he'd hoped. Uh, he bigged big comment up to everybody else and said they, they'd be really, really generous. He got there and it wasn't quite as grand, but the, the plan was that they should be faithful and committed to saving up a bit each week so that there would be a good amount when Paul arrived. He doesn't specify how much they should give. He just says each person should give something in accordance with the extent to which they prospered in the previous week. Then when I arrive, it will all be collected and sent on. One of the reasons why I thought, well, I might just kind of stay with 1 Corinthians a bit beyond Easter is because uh, once in a while it doesn't do any harm to preach on giving. And there aren't that many passages in the Bible that deal with it. And it just seems indecent to, to miss one when it's there. So three principles on giving that you get from this short passage in 1 Corinthians 16. Giving should be planned, giving should be private, giving should be proportionate to what you can afford. Firstly, good giving is planned. It's not a matter of fishing in your pocket for whatever coins happen to be there when the offering comes round. And uh, you know, if, if you are a person who gives by, by standing order or regularly by envelope, not to feel you have to put something in in the offering just so it doesn't appear that you're not giving because a substantial amount of money is given to God's work without it going in the offering bag week by week. And not putting anything in may be a sign actually that you've planned your giving effectively. But it should be part of our Christian commitment to be prepared to set aside some of our income to give away. Paul tells the Corinthians to store a sum of, store a sum of money in their own homes once a week. And many people in, in years gone by used to have jam jars in which they used to put money in various denominations and save it up for different causes. Some people might still do it, I don't know. And uh, you know, when the jam jars fall, off it goes to this or that missionary cause bit old-fashioned, but the principle is sound. Here at Brighton Road, we have weekly offering envelopes, but there are many ways of giving such a standing order, such as gift aid, which is of huge benefit to the church. Because under this scheme, the government top up your giving by refunding the tax that you've paid on that amount to the church or your chosen charity. So if you're giving money and you haven't gift aided it, you're denying the cause you're giving to money that the government would gladly give. So if you're a taxpayer and you're giving money to charity, do gift aid it because it, you know, it makes a big difference to the people that you're giving money to. Good giving is a matter of regular commitment. That's not to say there's no room for impulse giving because people do give give generously and spontaneously to issues when they arise. And you know, something connects with you, I've got to give to that, and people do give. That has its place. But equally, if you're going to be serious about your commitment to Christ, if you're going to be serious about your commitment to this or any other church, that involves planned giving. Not just giving because, oh, I'm inspired by that, I'm going to give some money to that. But the regular day-in, day-out ministry of the church requires regular day-in, day-out giving. Just as your body requires regular day-in, day-out feeding and nourishment by eating and sleeping. If we're going to be serious about our commitment to Christ, that entails dedicating to him a proportion of our income and of our time as well. 
giving financially, giving voluntarily. And that will differ from person to person. Because you're kind of stressed, high-flying city person who leaves at half past six in the morning and gets home at half past eight at night has no time, but arguably earns considerably more than someone on a part-time job who doesn't have a lot of money to spare, but has time to give. And we all are able to contribute in different ways to God's work here and elsewhere. In the Old Testament, the first part of the harvest was given to God in gratitude to his provision. And it's right that we give some of what we have received from God back to him as a way of honouring him. Secondly, how much you give is entirely up to you. Paul tells the people to store up what they intend to give in the privacy of their own home. How much people give to Brighton Road is known only to one or two people strictly on a need-to-know basis. Giving more money doesn't buy you influence, doesn't give you block votes in the church meeting, doesn't mean think, oh, so-and-so has written that letter and they're a really generous giver, we really better do what they say, otherwise, you know, we might lose out in that respect. It's not how it works. We don't, as some churches do, give people different coloured envelopes if you're tithers, just to demonstrate how faithful you are in giving generously. What you give is between you and God alone. And I hope there is no pressure, and there certainly shouldn't be any pressure. Because giving isn't about impressing others, it's about honouring God. And each of us will honour God in a way that is right and appropriate to us in our particular circumstance. None of us is in a position to sit in judgment upon other people. Yet Paul spells out the principle as well that giving should be proportionate to our prosperity. Give in keeping with your income, says the NIV. Some can afford a lot. Others may only be able to put in a fraction of that. A wealthy person can give a huge amount and hardly feel the cost of it at all. Another person may have to save really hard and make real sacrifices to give what seems to be a fairly trifling amount in comparison. The Lord knows what we give, how we give. And he values each gift, not in accordance with the number of noughts on the end of it, but in accordance with the spirit with which it's given. Is it given willingly? Gladly? Is it given faithfully? Is it given generously? Is it given sacrificially? Some churches set a target of giving. You should give a tenth of your income and... You know, we can we can just talk about whether that's a good benchmark or not. Um, you'll have heard me say before that my, my brother-in-law uh, was told by his church, you come to this church, you've got to tithe. He said, I can't do that. You know, I cannot tithe my income and feed my family. They said, well, you give to the church and we'll make sure you're right financially. He said, well, no. You know, from the point of view of my dignity and my pride, I want to take care of my family and I will give to the church what seems right between me and God. And they wouldn't have it and he left for a while. Um, so I'm quite firmly committed, actually, to saying, you know, what you give is between you and God, and no one is in a position to dictate that. But a tenth, yeah, it's, it's something to think about, perhaps. But what do you give a tenth of? 
Do you give a tenth of what you have left over at the end of the week? Do you give a tenth of your disposable income? Do you give a proportion of your net income after tax? Do you give a proportion of your gross income before tax? You can do anything with figures if you play hard enough. Do you give to the church? Do you give to another charity? What about other mission organisations or good causes? For every single person, it will be different. Just because two people are on the same income doesn't mean to say that they have the same outgoings. One will be able to afford to give more or less than another. I will say that over the years, and again I've said this before and we'll say it again, the more you give, it tends to be the more that you haven't given stretches and covers the needs that you have. But the crucial thing is that we give in a way that honours God. Sometimes people kind of press me a bit. Well, how much is a reasonable amount to give? And how, how do you know? What do you say? Because we are so very different. But if I, if I were to be pressed about, you know, what, is, what, what kind of amount might be honouring to God? How much? This is where I put my neck on the block. How much do you spend on leisure activities and holidays? And how much does that compare with what you give to God? That's not a bad rule of thumb. Actually, I'm not saying it has to be the same or more, but how much? How does it compare? How much more or less am I spending on my own personal enjoyment compared with what I give away? And how do I feel about that? Because some of us here will, will struggle to make ends meet full stop, and we have nothing spare in terms of our own personal enjoyment. Others of us are fairly comfortable. How's that reflected in what we do. Let me make it quite clear that I'm not against enjoying life. I'm not against spending money or having a good time. God has given us all things richly to enjoy, it says in 1 Timothy. And amen to that. There is joy in having prosperity and in spending money and enjoying do so. But there's joy to be found in being generous as well. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We can all nod our heads at that. Pause and consider, why should that be the case? Why should that be the case, to be more blessed, to give than to receive? We worship a generous God, who gave his only son for us, and with him has given us all things. When he looks at our lives, and our bank accounts, he's thrilled if he can see a family likeness in our own willingness to be generous with what we have, as he was with his son. Let's pray. Lord, you know those of us who are struggling financially. You know those of us who are fearful of the future, those of us who are struggling to work out how much we give and, and how we give. Lord, deliver us from worry and fear. Help us to trust you. Help us to honour you. May those who are really up against it find that you provide a way forward for them, a way out of their difficulties and troubles. In the quietness, just assure us of your love for us.
Open our hearts that we might receive the fullness of your grace and the fullness of your presence. Help us to honour you in how we live, in how we give of our money and our time and ourselves. You are the generous God of grace. May you see your likeness in our lives as, as individuals and as a church. In Jesus' name. Amen.